Hi everyone. Before we get into it, a brief announcement. I've been offering some short seminar discussions of thinkers who interest me through a company called Speakeasy, which runs open courses for the general public. So if you're interested in my discussion of Foucault in this episode, you may also be interested in the seminar I'm running on April 14th and 21st through Speakeasy, where we'll be discussing Foucault's relevance to the age of COVID and why he remains such a controversial figure today. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about this. Thanks for listening, and on to the show. Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast, and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Happy to have Justin Murphy on today. Justin has been a, an inspiration for the Outsider Theory Project, so I appreciate his willingness to join me to talk about some of our shared interests, and specifically to talk about his book, Base Deleuze, which to my mind is uh, a book that reveals some of the, the prospects and possibilities of what I'm calling Outsider Theory, at least in one sense of the term. So Justin has, a, has an interesting and complicated portfolio and um, it, it might be a little bit hard for me to sum up, so I'm going to ask him to introduce himself uh, to those unfamiliar with his work and just uh, tell us a bit about what he's up to these days. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Thanks for having me, first of all, Jeff. Yeah, so I'm a political scientist and theorist, and I was a professor for five years, about almost six. I got my PhD in 2014, and then I immediately won the academic lottery. I, I, I got that coveted, coveted tenure track job research-based, you know, professional gig in a university in uh, England. And I was really lucky. I mean, I, I was good and, and I was a competitive PhD student for sure, but I, it's just a lot of luck involved. As you know, as many people know, the number of PhDs produced each year is way greater than the number of open, of open spots. And so I won the lottery, got this job, was elated. And then it was, it was, it was basically just a kind of like progressive uh, disillusioning that happened over the next few years. It wasn't, it wasn't even anything political. It was just like, I found it increasingly painful and increasingly kind of boring. And it just was not what my vision of the intellectual life was. It's not, it's not what I dreamed of. It's not the reason that I paid my dues for so long doing a PhD and then, you know, competing on the, on the job market and all of that. It just was quite disappointing. And so I succeeded. I did very well. Like I was a I think it's fair to say like a rising star in the department had very prestigious publications, which many of my colleagues would not have been able to get. And I got along well with everyone personally. The problem was I just have a strong personal need for like being free and like just in principle. So I started getting in trouble for relatively trivial things. Again, not even political. Like a lot of people think the real, you know, oppressive factors in academia are, are these like political party lines. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but much more significantly is just the generalized bureaucratic sclerotic boredom and uh, extreme constraint on anything weird or interesting. <laughs> Basically, it's the problem. Like the first time I got in trouble was when I uh, took mushrooms in Amsterdam with my wife and I made some videos of myself tripping and I posted them on Instagram. That was like the first time I ever got reprimanded. Uh, they're like, professors can't do this. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not even illegal there. And there's more and more research that the stuff is good for you. And the videos I made were like perfectly wholesome. And, and actually they were really quite beautiful. Thank you very much. And I was like, no, I'm not taking this. They, they kind of wanted me to take it down. Thankfully they didn't like pick a fight on it. 
I was like, no, of course not. But that that that's like the real uh, problem. It's not it's not so much the political party lines. It's just a generalized feeling of um, hyper administrated, kind of hyper constrained bureaucratic culture. That was just the opposite of what I wanted out of the intellectual life. And then, you know, of course, the, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back, these kinds of instances kind of kept cropping up. But then I finally, I, a student did not like an undergraduate student did not like that. I occasionally use the word retard on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, so they like reported that to the dean. And then I had this like fairly high profile kind of conflict with the dean. They told me to they basically suspended me and they were like basically in no uncertain terms. They basically communicated to me like, all right, Justin, just go lay low and uh, this will probably blow over while we do a quote unquote investigation. And I was like, there's no way I'm not talking about this. It's, it's hilarious and it's fascinating. And I had this kind of growing Internet project at the time. My blog and my YouTube channel and my podcast were steadily growing. And, and that actually was the, the best example or the, the greatest uh, experience I was having in my life with respect to what I dreamed the intellectual life should be. I had absolute freedom. People understood what I was saying. And I had like direct, um, you know, relationships with people who were interested in my work and listening to it and reading it and, and appreciating it. And I could say and do anything I wanted. So as that was taking off and I was getting more and more, you know, kind of traction on the Internet, academia was becoming increasingly oppressive and stultifying to the point that I was just like, you know, if this is the, it, like, I'm just going to I'm just going to go to war on this point. And if it means I'm out of academia, that's going to be a winning situation for me. It was the calculation I made. So when they suspended me, I basically had paid leave to just do whatever I want while I was still on salary. So I just decided, you know, they told me to be quiet and I decided I'm going to say everything I want fully now. And if that means I get fired, then that's fine. I'll just, this will help me even accelerate my projects further. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's what happened. And basically by the end of it, it, by the end of the suspension period where I was like basically talking about everything I wasn't supposed to be talking about and, and having fun with it, I was at the point mentally where like there was no going back. I didn't want, like, I couldn't go back. I didn't want to. There's like, if they, if they came to me and they were like, okay, Justin, this is all over. Just come, come back to work. I'm pretty sure I would have been like, no, I, I just, I'm done. This is, this sucks. And this internet stuff is awesome and it's working It's succeeding. I'm making money doing it. And I'm pretty confident I can grow it out into something full-time. So the way it ultimately finished was at the end of, uh, at, at the end of this, they kept extending the, the suspension period for the in, quote unquote investigation because I kept saying stuff on the internet that I was technically not allowed to say. So they had to keep extending the, the, the investigation period. By the end of it, I had four, it was basically a four month paid vacation where I was just working full time on growing my internet projects. And by the end of it, um, I just decided to resign. I just said goodbye and packed my bags and came back to America, the real you know home of the free and land of the brave. Um, so a couple of comments. Somebody uh, who wrote very interestingly about the the sort of bureaucratic, over-administrative um, university regime was the late David Graeber. He, mm. um, he had some interesting comments about the stultifying nature of the sort of administrative apparatus that oversaw research and intellectual life in the university. And in his, in his position was that this was one of the main reasons that the general quality of, of research and of, you know, the, of thinking, you know, of original thinking was so low in the university today mm. because it largely rewards people who are good at checking boxes and being able to come up with these 
you know, rationales that are pleasing to administrators for why they should continue to be funded to do what they're doing, but that doesn't mean what they're doing. In fact, that probably means what they're doing is safe and um, generally unadventurous and by the book. So he had a, he had an interesting um, analysis of that, which, you know, was, was related to his experiences also in UK universities. And, you know, I think this relates to, uh, you know, you pointed out the sort of initially non-political or largely non-political dimension. And, uh, you know, I think the way people often think about this is entirely through the lens of political correctness or something similar. But um, I think what, what a lot of those critiques from conservatives miss is the way that political correctness is just part of a larger problem, right? And, and the problem is this sclerotic bureaucracy that oversees this, this incredibly top-heavy university system and that is increasingly intolerant of any kind of original or adventurous thinking or work. And that can take the form of these kinds of ridiculous um, cancellations, but it's also, you know, I would argue, stultifying to intellectual life in ways that that go far beyond that, right? So I think that that's what a lot of the conservative critique of the university really misses, that 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 the reason it's bad for intellectual life, that the political correctness is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, totally. So, you know, and as as people will see, this um, nicely sets up the conversation we're going to have. But yeah, yeah I think, um, so your experience is, you know, is interesting in that it, um, it, it really, I, you know, the parts that probably made people who didn't know you otherwise became aware of were, you know, the R word uh, <laughs> controversy or whatever, but, you know, it's, it's a much deeper thing. Um, that's, I think the, the over-enforcement of those kind of norms is, is one of the various ways that, that um, this bloated university system tries to, you know, stultify and um, attenuate any kind of genuine intellectual life. So I don't yeah. know if you'd agree with that assessment, but yeah, I think a lot of people on the outside of academia don't understand how how kind of terrifyingly Orwellian it is within the institutions, not politically, but just in terms of everyday language and everyday life. Like it's Soviet Union levels of self-deceiving, basically. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you know, you go to department meetings and you talk about things like what's going on with the students and, you know, university strategy moving forward, you go to these different like work meetings and pretty much everything about the internal dialogue within the institution is all of this weird language that is just like completely not credible, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you talk about like learning outcomes yeah. and then there are these rules around, like you have to have certain learning outcomes and you have to put them in your syllabus, but like everyone knows with, without a doubt that when it comes to actually teaching, none of the learning outcomes are actually like ever practiced or considered. It's like little things like that. It's, it's, it's trivial little bureaucratic falsities that, that because they're not that big a deal, people just basically kind of brush them off, right? You academics for the most part, the academic just wants to do their research and kind of be left alone. And they'll kind of tolerate whatever little weird bureaucratic nonsense gets pushed down from, from on high. But what happens then is that, the whole culture and all of the internal language becomes saturated with accumulated nonsensical <laughs> ideas and uh, like euphemisms. And before you know it, everything that is said in like an hour long department meeting is just like falsehood followed by euphemism, followed by kind of like ridiculous uh, marketing speak. And before you know it, it's like you can spend 
a whole day in the department. And it's like, it's all good people. Like I loved all my colleagues. I had good friendships and everyone on a personal level was cool, but the entire day, you can spend an entire day going to meetings and you're like, literally none of that made any sense. And none of it is going to work. And all the things we said we're going to do over the next like six months, none of that's actually going to happen. And these, and these like rules that we commit to, 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 to following through on when we conduct our classes, it's all like basically nonsense that every lecturer immediately forgets about and just carries on doing their own thing anyway. <laughs> and so it's like at a certain point to live in that kind of microcosm is a massive cognitive tax. And it's, it's a mat, like if your goal in life is to think clearly and to seek the truth and to communicate the truth clearly as your goal should be, if, if you're any kind of academic or intellectual, living in this kind of Soviet Union-esque Orwellian landscape is, it, it, it really, really rots the mind and the soul. And, and I considered the cost of that to be a little too high, I think. Absolutely. And I think this gets to another, um, another key point that will inform what we're about to talk about at greater length, which is that the irony of one of the standard, you know, conservative and sort of classical liberal or centrist criticisms of particularly humanities and some extent social science academia is this idea that it's it's been infused with you know postmodernism or poststructuralism or um, whatever we want to call it right it's it's this theory with a capital T that has um, corrupted the the vocation of the university and you know we can think of um, somebody like you know James Lindsay as as one of the avatars of this position. So one of the the ironies that that critique tend one of the ironies that that critique tends to ignore is that a great deal of what we think of as theory, whether we call it post-structuralist or something else, is often taken up with a critique of bureaucracy and the increasingly increasingly administered society that came about over the course of the 20th century. Like a great deal of what falls under the heading of theory is uh, in that sense, um, uh, you know, focused on that trajectory. So the irony that that critique often fails to recognize is that the places that have been um, hugely intellectually influenced by that body of theory are themselves some of the key exemplars of the very social phenomena that that theory was developed to critique, right? That in other words, the, the university is the most heavily administered and bureaucratic institution that there is. And, you know, part of the way that I've thought about it is the, um, you know, the centrality of someone like Foucault and who, who we may talk about later in, you know, a whole variety of fields in the humanities and social sciences coincides with the increased corporatization of the university and its increasingly bureaucratic nature such that you can almost read it as a kind of um, self-allegorization where when they're using Foucault to think about, you know, whatever, some moments in history or some literary text, what they're really ultimately thinking about is themselves, right? Because um, the, the reason that this type of thinking is congenial to them is because it diagnoses precisely the condition that, that they themselves are in and are, are part of reproducing, but they themselves tend to be unaware of that. Right, that, or, or at least, um, or at least, not fully honest about the degree to which that is. That's the extent. At least, that's my my sense of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the interest in people like Foucault and and the Frankfurt School in academia today and the humanities today is because by reading those people and 
appreciating them and talking about those ideas, they get to kind of imagine that they're not the problem they are. It gives them this kind of like false uh, kind of intellectual distance, which yeah, allow allow kind of allows them to sustain the the fact that that they are part and parcel of this kind of horrifying system. And because it's very interesting what you said, because you know Marcuse gets a bad rap, Foucault gets a bad rap, but the the description I just provided of the real underlying problem of academia and why it's why it's intolerable is this is was essentially a kind of Marcusean uh, analysis that I gave there. It's like. I actually think Marcuse gets a bad rap. I, I think he's way more interesting and, and legit than, than he gets credit for. And, and in a sense, it was because I read people like Marcuse when I was an undergrad and was really affected by those ideas, really, really appreciated them and was, was formed by them in some ways that I went into academia with a, 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 a strong guard. You know, I went, I went into it with a certain vigilance expecting a kind of sclerotic, bureaucratic, you know, administered culture in part because people like Marcuse primed me, primed me to be aware of that. And Marcuse taught me to beware that institutions are constantly trying to suppress my true, you know, radical subjectivity and, and, and my, my potential becoming. And it was, it was in part because of Marcuse that I was able to, I think, you know, keep my head on straight and not let the, not let them uh, bring me down basically. And, and was able to you know, get out of there and do something fundamentally new and, and something that, in my opinion, I mean, I, I'm just like, it, it's, inc it's increasingly obvious and clear to me that what I'm doing now outside of the university is just in every possible way, a superior model of the professional full-time long-term intellectual life. And uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Marcuse, who, who kind of taught me to be extremely sensitive to the, to the hyper-constraining subjectivity suppressing effects of bureaucratic institutions. So yeah, a lot of these left-wing thinkers get a really bad rap. And if you read them closely, you can find a ton of quite profound and important ideas and diagnoses that I think are really relevant for understanding the world today. As I think this is something that you appreciate, there's something similar between your project and my project. You're, you're, I think you're very attuned to this fact also. Yeah, and I think we'll come back to uh, Marcuse a bit later so um, let's let's get into your um, book, Base Deleuze, which is one one of various projects that came out of your departure from academia, and it does it's you know it's it's one angle um, that that you know to pursue in relation to the the set of issues we've just been discussing. So this book, um, I will say, is you know, to me, uh, uh, an interesting sort of gambit and a, a sort of, um, it represents a, a different proposition for intellectual life simply because of the, um, simply because of what it attempts to do. I mean, even beyond specifically what it says, right? What it attempts to do is present an idiosyncratic account of, an avowedly idiosyncratic account of the ideas of a major thinker and without going through any academic publishing um, gatekeepers, simply puts it out there for the public at large and makes it available to people. Um, and it, you know, so it's in that sense a fundamentally kind of democratic model of intellectual life. Um, and it, it doesn't rely on, you know, attaching any institutional prestige. It, it, it's, putting the ideas out there and hoping they will, you know, simply stand because of their seriousness and quality and um, uniqueness. So 
you know, this in some sense seems like, I, I think you make a remark that um, <laughs> somewhere in the book that it's, it's remarkable that nobody else seems to be trying to do this, right? <laughs> because it's, it's not a particularly logistically difficult or even particularly surprising path to take. And yet, um, even despite the collapsing um, prospects for employment in academia, um, you know, even the people who are, who are kind of gradually being um, squeezed out by the unavailability of jobs are simply not trying to do this kind of thing for the most part, which is, which is shocking. And I think, you know, largely evidence of how effective this system is at sort of crushing individuality of independence and creativity among the people who pass through it. So, so in a sense, what, you know, what you did with this book is a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple um, project in a sense, but nevertheless, it's, as far as I know, largely unprecedented and unparalleled to this day. Um, and so I think it's, it, you know, even just that basic set of facts about it uh, makes it noteworthy, but the argument is also noteworthy. So we will get into that, but perhaps you could just um, explain, first of all, what, um, what sort of led you to write this book? And second of all, how you see it fitting into the larger array of, of projects for independent intellectual life that you're currently developing, because you're also pot, you know, doing a podcast, um, YouTube show, um, starting the Indie Thinkers community um, and, and various other things, so, and, and your newsletter. So how does, how, does, how does book publishing fit into that? And how did this particular book come into being? Yeah, those are great questions. And I'm happy to unpack some of that. And first of all, thanks for, thanks for the very kind introduction. I appreciate that framing of the book. What I would say is most kind of interesting, probably for your audience and for you about this book, in my view, is that like the book is fine. I'm, 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 I was pleased with it. I'm, I'm proud of it. I wouldn't have put my name on it and published it if it wasn't you know, uh, defensible, if it wasn't something that I, I stand by. So I think it's a fun, cool little book that's uh, perfectly worth publishing. But to be clear, like in my opinion, the, the book is not, it's not, it's nothing too special. I don't think it's not like some magnum opus. It's uh, really, I did that book specifically just as an opening salvo, as, as a, a provocation more in form and in, in, in the nature of the project being the contribution and the, and the provocation more so than the content of the book. Because basically what I wanted to show with that book is that, you know, if you're a PhD level thinker or researcher, you can spin off a book in a, in a month without too much trouble. You know, if you've been reading books your whole life and, and doing professional research publications, you know, a book doesn't need to be this super um, bureaucratic, extremely long, time-consuming uh, act of drudgery and bureaucratic submission and stultification, which is how most people experience it when, when you publish a book in academia, especially in the humanities, where it's like, you know, well, uh, let, me, let me try to keep this focused. So what I really wanted to do with the book was just say, as a first test case, first book out of academia, I'm just going to try to write something fast about something that I find interesting about ideas I already have brewing in my mind, just to see how fast I can do it and to see what kind of results I get, see how many people buy it, see, you know, what kind of sales it earns, see what the impact is. And also just to show that I could do every single step of the process all by myself. So I had zero help on that book. I did the writing. I did the book cover design, the internal, uh, you know, formatting. I did the pretty much everything from beginning to end. And I didn't hire an editor. So I did it. I basically conceived of the book 
and had it published in the course of about three months, spent about one month full-time writing. And, but from conception to publication, it was about three months roughly. And so I just wanted to basically show how fast if you have something to say, if you have real ideas and you've, you've put in the work and the, and the time and, and the research to do something like a PhD, you know, and you have interesting ideas to share in that, that reach a kind of book level quality or book level um, format or length, then writing a book is something that you can do relatively fast and, and effectively. So yeah, the book is not amazing. It's a, it's a relatively short, you know, uh, as I, as, as I said in the book, idiosyncratic take on just some, some lingering ideas and, and themes that I saw in Deleuze that I always wanted to write about, but it has no place in academia basically. And so that would, that's one thing I would say about it is, is really a kind of provocation and a, and a test run to see what kind of results it gets. It gets in the future. I'll, I'll definitely like put more effort into it basically. And in the future, I'll, I'll like hire, you know, a, a, a paid line editor to, to make it, you know, even nicer or I'll uh, hire a cover designer or whatever, but just wanted to basically prove it could be done and see what it would be like. So that that's the, that's the short answer. And then you asked about what is the the role of book publishing moving forward into this new kind of uh, independent intellectual world that we're entering. Well, I do think that writing is has always been and always will be the coin of the realm in in elite intellectual circles. And when it comes to what actually has influence on on the culture at, at, at the high level of of real kind of original idea production and and intellectual influence, I do believe that writing will always be the coin of the realm. For different reasons, which we could go into, but but I do take that to be a fact then and now. I, I don't think that you know the rise of platforms like Clubhouse and podcasting. I, I don't think any of that suggests that writing will no longer be the coin of the realm, and uh, we'll soon have like you know uh, you know highly influential. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm not so confident. I mean, who knows? There might be some edge cases. There are, of course, examples in the history of philosophy where people have been extremely influential without writing. People like Socrates. Uh, so. With, with with some room for some exceptions, maybe we'll have some like, you know, uh, bards who have extraordinary intellectual influence just from being on Clubhouse all of the time. But um, for the most part, I, I do think that most original uh, advancements in intellectual history will will, will will be in the form of writing and, and not just in the form of writing, but in the form of writing books. Um, at the end of the day, a book is really just a collection of, of blog posts <laughs> structured together a little bit more systematically, perhaps with a little bit more overarching structure. Um but, you know, a lot of people can write blog posts, not uh, far fewer people can write books. And so there's just kind of this uh, intrinsic uh, filtering and selection effect that that writing a book has. It, it narrows down, but it doesn't narrow down much. If you look at the numbers of books that are published on Amazon each day, it's it's pretty extraordinary. So so, yeah, um, I do think that will, there will continue to be a place for for publishing books. Uh, I do think that self-publishing is way underrated. Uh, I think academ- academics are pretty much just um, obsessed with a certain old model of social status and influence. They think that they have to get a, you know, uh, either one of the big five in New York City or uh, some kind of, a, you know, a prestigious academic imprint to publish their book to have uh, to have intellectual influence. I do fundamentally believe that's just no longer the case. And yeah, b- just because there are increasingly smart people who aren't even going into academia. So you can get a book published with like Harvard University Press and that will definitely win you a few elite readers who wouldn't otherwise pay attention for sure. But you have to think about those elite readers you win by publishing with Harvard. Where are they going? I would argue that those people are exiting the mean pool. I mean, there, there are still going to be some of them who are influential. Um, but if you what you really want is long-term intellectual influence, I would much rather the 
a handful of the smart, the smartest, like 20 year olds right now who would normally go to do a PhD because they want to pursue an intellectual life, but who are not pursuing a PhD right now because they'd much rather be a famous YouTuber doing like book reviews and, and philosophy videos or whatever. I'd much rather be read by those people than like the, the 10 people who will read my book just because it's published with Harvard University Press. So I'm putting all of my money on that. I'm putting all of all of my effort wagering it on that. That um, yeah, if, if you if you really want to have long term intellectual influence, I do think that you need to go independent more and more. I'm, I'm convinced of this. And the final thing I'll say is that it goes back to what I was saying earlier to, earlier in the conversation about how academia is suffused with just all of these kind of cognitive taxes that have accumulated, so that just being a professor. And publishing a book with Harvard University Press requires literally years of like submission to like cognitively confusing, meaningless signaling and social games. And so it's like you have to really take into account the price that, that you're paying with that. Like that is time that you could be developing real ideas. That's time you could be in the books. That's time you could be developing like truly original ideas that are that are that are um, completely impossible for other people to see. So it's like, as an intellectual, you need to make this calculation of like, what is the arrangement where I have the highest probability of making true discoveries that are truly original and valuable and important. And it just seems to me that the price you pay in academia going the institutional route, getting that Harvard University Press book, it's like, literally, you have to submit to like 10 years of not really saying anything interesting to get the right to that Harvard University book. And the way things are moving, the way things are, are flowing, I just think, the costs of that are increasing while the payoff to going purely independent is extraordinary. You can move so much faster and you can actually get your work into the hands of the new wave of where influence is going to be, which is new media. Because I know for a fact, I meet people who are like genius 20 year olds who are, uh, you know, they're exactly the type of person that would have done a PhD 10 years ago, but now they're smart and they see that that's a losing, that's a losing battle. And they're just, they just want to be YouTubers now or bloggers or newsletter writers or whatever. Um, so I'm putting my money on, on that new wave uh, just for all of these different variables, the, the strategic landscapes for these different reasons, just looking at the costs and the benefits and the expected payoffs. I just think the people who do what I'm doing are going to be the ones who have the, like, you know, any intellectual, I'm not vain or anything, but I think any intellectual just wants to be read, you know, not just today, but in a hundred years and 200 years, you know, the true intellectual wants that kind of long-term impact. And that's what I'm all about for sure. And I think I, I really do just personally believe that if you want that, uh, you have to go all in on the outside because the insides have gotten so bad. So I think this leads us nicely into one of the themes of the book, which, you know, is, is expressed in its subtitle and which I'm sure many find uh, perplexing, which is this concept of reactionary leftism. So I'm going to try to summarize uh, the, the way you frame this in my in my own words, but also kind of um, going back to some of what we've been talking about, and um, perhaps you can tell me whether you think this is accurate. All so right. you distinguish between reactivism, or you, you distinguish between reactivism and reactionism. So reactivism as a um, a, a resistance to um, what is trying to find a good um, a good definition of it in here. 
but um, you know, it, it, uh, sorry, always responding to active superior forces instead of becoming an active force to be captured by sad affects, to be resentful and to think and act with these as one's motive forces. So this is essentially what you define as reactionism, um, which is this being in this kind of rear guard position of, of objecting and of um, being um, resentful of that which is more powerful or um, stronger. So, and this you say can be a failure mode of left and right-wing politics. Um, and then you, you define reactionary on the other hand as roughly also possibly the opposite, right? Um, because what it refers to, you say, is um, a strong-willed and eager individual eager to avoid reaction is, or sorry, eager, eager to avoid reactivism who wishes to constitute an authentic, healthy, and autonomous existence will eventually be coded as reactionary. So here I think back to our whole discussion of the academic institution and the fact that this, in other words, is precisely the individual who is going to chafe against the constraints of that kind of a heavily managed and bureaucratized um, environment, right? And who therefore will be coded as reactionary and stigmatized and whose, whose resistance to that, um, that type of systematic control will be um, stigmatized within that environment. So, you know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, within this, the term reactionary, depending on which which version of it you're referring to could could be a good way of describing these institutions themselves, right? Because they they function largely in this defensive manner to l- largely um, attenuate any kind of vital forces within them and and sort of sap those and plug them into this um, you know factory like um, highly controlled system. But then it can also refer to precisely the kind of forces that that would resist or react um, negatively against that kind of control. So I don't know if that, um, if that somewhat long-winded recap of your definition seems right to you. Is there anything you'd add or clarify? That was very confident. Thank you for that. I appreciate, I appreciate your thoughtful reading. I think the only thing I would really add is that in my view, the real enemy is the, the, the resentment, the, the reactive forces. And here I follow Nietzsche and Spinoza and Deleuze. It's like what reactionary in our kind of liberal progressive world today has this kind of intrinsically negative connotation, precisely because for whatever reason, the the, the mainstream kind of prestige institutions are now so kind of left dominated. The reactionary is this kind of like bad word. Um, but when you actually try to think through it, if, if you're an honest, just open-minded, truth-seeking person, and you don't really care that much about left or right, and you try to drill down into what, like, what is the problem with what is called reactionary politics, or what is the failure mode, perhaps we might say, of, of reactionary politics? Like, if there is something bad about it, what is it primarily? And I think it's pretty much uh, what Nietzsche called, uh, you know, the reactive forces or, or, or resentment, essentially. And so... Um, one form of reactionary politics is, you know, you look at technological progress, you look at various forms of, 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 you know, modern social change, and you just feel reactively opposed to it. You just want to stop other people's, you know, power from increasing. It, it, it feels wrong to you, and you don't like what someone else is doing. You don't like how society is changing or growing, 
and you want to stop that from happening. That's a kind of, you know, uh, what, what, what we might call a kind of reactiveness that I think is, is resentful and, and uh, beneath us. And, and so that's bad. That's the bad thing. But having a kind of uh, possibly conservative kind of implication in any way at all isn't necessarily the bad thing. And so if you look at not just Deleuze, but a lot of the best thinkers on the radical left in the 20th century, they had weird kind of reactionary aspects to them in the sense of, well, now I use this, this sense of, of reactionary, not in the sense of resentful or reactive, but in the sense of seeing, um, seeing liberalism as itself a kind of resentful force, right? So there, there's a kind of reactionary politics against resentment and, 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 and petty vulgar reactivism. And I think that actually characterizes a lot of the best thinkers like Foucault, Marcuse, certainly Adorno and uh, Deleuze as well. These, these are, are people who saw that liberalism was itself this vehicle of resentful reactive forces. And if you see liberalism as the container for resentment, then you're intrinsically going to be reactionary to some degree, but it's an active kind of non-resentful reactionary politics is how I would put it. Yeah, I mean, again, I I think perhaps part of what's tricky about this is that you're, it's almost as if you're, re, you know, reactionary is being used in this derogatory way as a way of stigmatizing certain kinds of vitality or, or what you call basedness in, in other parts of the book. Um, so, you know, part of the difficulty of making the argument is perhaps that because the, the framing of the term comes from people who are using it to attempt to stigmatize certain types of thought or, um, or um, certain thinkers, it, it, it can be difficult to, um, to get beyond that framing. But, you know, I think part of what you're doing is, is trying to push the term into different territory um, so that we can actually imagine how something like re uh, reactionary leftism is not such an oxymoron as people might um, imagine. And I mean, I, you know, you, you at, at certain points um, refer in the book to a non-resentful theory of collective liberation, right? Which, as I understand it, would be the, the version of leftism that, um, that one can um, adopt from, from Deleuze as you read him. And again, returning to the centrality of the problem of resentment, right? So, so what does a non-resentful theory of collective liberation look like according to Deleuze and or yourself? Yeah, I think you defect from the resentment-laden bureaucratic institutions and you build your own systems of creative liberation for you and your friends, essentially. And it is a somewhat elitist attitude insofar as you have to kind of accept that a large majority of people are just going to basically go along with whatever is seen as normal. And a it's only going to be a relatively small number of people who have what it takes to really have the courage and the, uh, the determination and the kind of intellectual clarity to defect from the, the, the drift of overwhelming kind of majority opinion. And, but when you have that group of people, you really can do extraordinary things and you can fundamentally re-engineer systems of perception. You can fundamentally re-engineer flows of, of money. And 
So I think what you basically do is defect from institutions, create truly liberated circulations of energy with people who want to do the same thing. So here we're talking about kind of uh, elective affinities. You know, you're looking for just those other people who want to do this thing that you're describing. And if it's 10 people, that's more than enough. If it's a hundred people, that's great. Um, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't need, you don't need, to, you're not trying to change the world. You're not trying to uh, change anyone else's opinions. You're not trying to stop anyone from doing anything else, which is always the sign of, of, of re resentment. You know, what Deleuze says is you should never object to anyone. There's just no need to ever object to anyone or anything. If you just, you know, go towards that, which increases your joy and power and go away from that, which decreases your joy and power. That's, that's essentially Spinoza's ethics in a nutshell. Uh, and so a kind of non-resentful theory of collected liberation just takes this to its extreme. And I think what's most interesting is the way that technology is increasingly making us see how viable and possible it is. I think it's, I think it's to actually do this successfully is easier than it's ever been still not necessarily easy, but it's easier than it's ever been because it's easier than ever to basically engineer flows of information and data and creativity and also finances in increasingly efficient and agile ways. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to overhype anything I'm doing because I'm just groping my way towards these things. But even if you look at like indie thinkers, for instance, like indie thinkers is essentially a business enterprise that I created after I left academia, because I noticed there were a lot of other people trying to do what I was trying to do more or less or something similar. And they were turning to me for advice and asking me like how they should do things. And it immediately occurred to me that like, I actually do have a lot to share and there's a lot I know. And also just putting people in touch with other people is valuable to them because people want to start podcasts and people want to start YouTube channels and things like this, where they want collaborators and need collaborators. And they also just want readers. You know, they want, they want to find other people who are interested in original ideas outside of institutions. And so it occurred to me, okay, I could put all these people together and make it a kind of business enterprise and give them a bunch of uh, kind of support and features. But then what immediately came to me, which is much more exciting to me is like, then it becomes possible to start doing uh, weird in creative, like profit sharing types of, of processes. So it's like what immediately came into focus was, okay, this is up and running. It seems to be working. People are happy to pay a bit of money for like this club with all of its features. But now the people that are really cool in it and really good, I can give them opportunity. I can like basically set them up doing the kinds of things I'm doing where like they can make money doing it themselves. And, and so it's like, this is never, it's never been this easy to do this kind of thing at scale with like strangers, because we have the, not just the internet, but even just recent technologies, like over the past few, like three, five years, we have new technologies that make this really easy. Just like a variety of internet-based services and systems that basically make it possible to do this type of revenue sharing and, and stuff like that really easy without even doing any coding, honestly. Um, and so it's like this, I think, and then you look at the blockchain and you see the real formalization of what I'm talking about, because in the not too distant future, it will be very easy to have something like indie thinkers, where uh, basically like blockchains and internal community tokens are used to basically you can arrange it so that you have a, a, a profitable enterprise that's totally outside of institutions doing its own thing has no allegiance or dependence on governments or, uh, you know, anything else. And it's a completely autonomous organization, which is itself profitable, and within which the profits are constantly and in real time redistributed to the members of it in this like highly automatic and organic, extremely fair, uh, dynamic way. Um, and so it's like basically the old dream of the workers, you know, the old, the, the old, you know, um, union laborers who dreamed of a world where the workers 
had an equal share in the driving of the organization and an equal share in the profits of the organization, that whole dream is actually increasingly possible using the most advanced technology uh, available. There are even some case studies of, of organizations that are functioning in this way. But the irony is that at this moment in time, to get there, to get into that kind of radical, autonomous, egalitarian structure, you have to take this somewhat, you know, tech-centric, somewhat libertarian, seemingly, you know, what people would call a kind of reactionary politics of exit to get there. So you need this kind of reactionary opposition to the liberal, you know, to the dominant liberal order. But then through this kind of tech libertarian gambit, you can then, we can finally, I believe, create systems of truly liberating uh, potentiality in which uh, everything is more egalitarian and more genuinely, uh, you know, conducive to the, to the true radical flourishing of, of all of the people involved in a way that actually is very faithful to the, to the, to the, to the Marxian dream of, of true liberation and flourishing through uh, disalienated labor. So I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on that. I, I really do think that's where we're going uh, more and more. So this relates to this chapter in Bastila's about pronomianism and antinomianism. Mm. I'm wondering if you could recap that because I, I think it, it provides a certain, perhaps slightly different, but related rationale for the program you just outlined. Yeah, sure. So th- th- this is a long-running distinction. Uh, n- so so an- uh, pronomianism. Uh, first of all, the the root there is nomos. The nomos is you know the it's the sphere of of, of social laws basically, and or or kind of the reign of words is, is one way you might think about it. You know, every society has a kind of symbolic order, uh, kind of system of of words that represent laws and, and kind of define the norms of of the society. That's the nomos, right? And so. Uh, the, the pronomian attitude is basically the attitude in which the words that define, you know, the laws of society have to be, have to be enforced with, with a kind of, uh, you know, uh, with, with sometimes an extreme rigor. Uh, I think it was DC Miller who said on my podcast a few months ago when I asked him, you know, what is conservatism? And he said, it's the, the rectification of names. So, so, so pronomianism is essentially a, a always a kind of conservative attitude in, in, in some sense, because it's about correcting wherever, you know, society is becoming dissolute or, or dishonest or disingenuous in, in how its behaviors are matching to the laws of, of, of that order. So it always has a conservative kind of implication, uh, pronomianism or the rectification of names. Antinomianism is generally seen as a kind of left-wing tendency because it's about breaking free from the constraints of, of the laws or, or of the words that define society. And so to be antinomian is to say, oh, no, look, these words, that, these laws, these, these strictures are out of date. They're, they're, we're out of sync with them. We need, to, we, need to, we need to be free to do things outside of the laws, uh, you know. And, and, and so that's a kind of, oh, naturally, it's easy to see how that's a kind of rebellious, uh, more kind of left-leaning left um, idea. And so that's, that's what I set up in the book, but what, what, remind me what you find like interesting about that or where should I, where should we go with that? I was interested in your discussion of, uh, contracts and, and Deleuze's sort of contractualism. Ah, uh, yes. Right. And, so, um, which, right. which is related to what you argue is his pronomianism. And I, I was interested in that in relation to the, um, you, you know, you have a chapter called decentralized pronomianism. 
Yes, that's right. So that's right. So it's very I, I similar was, to what I would, yeah. yeah. It's very similar here to what I was just saying a minute ago. So it's a, it's actually a nice segue. This will let us go a little bit deeper. So basically, what I seem to suggest in the book, I think, is that the this left wing kind of rebellious instinct to say, you know, the order of names or the order of the laws is too repressive. It's it's too out of date. Uh, we want to flourish and and be more free than what the what the laws of the world allow, or maybe the laws of the world have been corrupted, and so it's it's necessary to rebel against against the known the nomos because the nomos is itself corrupted. I think this is a very good instinct. It's and it's and it's in many ways very true, right? So it's like what I referred to earlier today about like leaving academia. Like it was a kind of antinomian rebellion in a way. It was like I, I was saying the the order of laws in the system is is totally bonkers it's it's completely corrupted and it's and it's really like eating at my soul and and it's a real cognitive tax so there do come junctures where the nomos is corrupted to a degree where you can't rectify it and you have to kind of get out of it and so that's the antinomian attitude and impulse which i think is fair and it's this is basically you know this is this is um you know marcuse really and like one one dimensional man basically saying that you know the the, the nomos um, has become has become all too all, all all too repressive and suppressive, and so I'm all about that antinomian instinct now. But the, here's here's where a lot of people get it wrong, though. Here's where a lot of leftists mess up: is that they think they can just basically go antinomian all the way and be antinomian nonstop, and that's where the problems arise because you know then you have uh, you're not going to be able to do anything basically. So what you really want is the kind of antinomian rebellion against wherever the nomos is corrupt and, and unsalvageable. But then immediately after that, you want to create your own nomos, which is correct and true. And then with respect to that, you have to be conservative. You have to be, you have to be, um, you actually want a true and correct nomos and you want it to be all the more rigorous. And so that's why Deleuze was very interested in contracts. It's a, it's a very bizarre thing for, for a philosopher like Deleuze to be interested in contracts. And he actually saw in, you know, BDSM, uh, an interesting, you know, kind of philosophical model in a way, uh, the power of, of contracts, because what you're doing with contracts is essentially it's autonomous. So you're, you're, you're freely creating systems of mutual control, more or less. And so I think this is all the more salient right now when we have blockchains and smart contracts, which are pretty much the, the clearest and most technical instantiation of, of what we're talking about here. And you can do it democratically and autonomously uh, with increasing flexibility, right? So it, like, if you think that you have an idea for a better society or, or a better way that things should be organized, like flows of data or information and money and things like that, or, or laws, like if you if you think you have a system of laws um, or flows, to use the Belizean term, that is superior to the one that mainstream society represents, well, guess what? Now you can actually execute, you can encode that in scripts called smart contracts and you can put those on the blockchain such that they are going to run whether you like it or not. Once you once you agree on them and once you put them on the blockchain, they happen automatically if certain conditions are met. But you get full control over defining those those conditions. And so this is what you want, the antinomian rebellion when it's appropriate. Yes, exit institutions. But then you need to set about creating your own kind of pronomian, uh, autonomous, decentralized pronomian cultures and this just requires a kind of toggling of the left wing and the right wing instinct as appropriate. So this is probably, you You brought up Marcuse, and this is probably a good place to open out into some cross currents with other thinkers, uh, some of whom I've been writing about recently. 
So you have a, a line in the book called that says, uh, one would need a whole book to explore all of the subtle currents of reactionary leftism in post-war European philosophy. So in some sense, some of what I've been doing on my outsider theory blog is, you know, writing some other chapters in that hypothetical book. Um, so, you know, if I had to sum up what my argument has been recently, um, I'll, I'll just quote from a piece I wrote called Theory Cells in Trump World. So uh, theory as it first entered the American arena of ideas in the late 1960s and early 1970s was associated with the radicalism of 1968, the counterculture and the anti-institutional transgressive spirit of the era. This is as much true of figures like Derrida and Foucault as of Marcuse, who despite his age and old world errors was a hero of the student radicals. In this sense, the affinity, the affinity I've attempted to sketch out between this disparate group of thinkers and the Trump era right parallels the cultural phenomenon explored by Angela Nagel, by which the transgressiveness and anti-authoritarianism of the 60s left was later embraced by the extreme and extremely online right in the years before the 2016 election. What made this appropriation possible was that theory had long since become normalized within the institutional structures of the university that its exponents had originally set out to critique. It thereby lost any capacity to challenge those institutions and indeed was absorbed into their self-justification. The long march through the institutions undertaken by 60s radicals ended up not with the liberation of those institutions, but with the integration of pseudo-liberationist ideologies into the worldview that sustains them. So the the picture of Deleuze that you give, I would say is the picture of, of a thinker who can offer something beyond this type of pseudo-liberationist ideology that is largely this, this sort of domesticated world of academic theory, where these theories that were originally radically anti-institutional have become integrated into the functioning of the institutions themselves and have become in a way a sort of alibi for the institutions, as you said earlier. So we could talk about the various figures I've written about recently. In terms of Deleuze, um, you know, if you had to sum up what what you think he offers that that is uh, genuinely challenging to intellectual life within academia as it currently exists. Um, how, how would you sum that up briefly? I think Deleuze is calling for us to completely set sail cognitively and emotionally and intellectually from the prestige racket of status jostling and, and social bargaining. And I think that in a lot of ways, that is the real enemy. The real, en- the real enemy is this centralized kind of pyramid of influence or, or power that is based on institutions and which kind of defines the modern period in a lot of ways, but is also based on old technologies that are increasingly obsolete. You know, everyone has in their mind a kind of mental structure of, you know, the kind of the great social pyramid, basically. You think of, you know, there's the masses at the bottom, right? And then, uh, you know, as you get more prestigious, it's smaller and smaller populations. And at the top are, you know, the famous institutions, which you, which you grew up revering, right. Whether it's Harvard university or Yale, the Ivy league universities, uh, but also, you know, the, the, the great government agencies and all of that, that we have the, in this, in the, we have this mental model of, of, a, of a great kind of pyramid of prestige and influence. But a lot of that, especially when it comes to the intellectual or the, the kind of cultural institutions, a lot of that is very specifically predicated, predicated on 
a certain configuration of, of, of media technologies. It's really the broadcast uh, mass media that, that is the basis for that, that pyramidal structure, that one centralized pyramid. Because think about it, when you have newspapers, radio, and television as the dominant media, well, what do all those have in common? They're, they're one-to-many broadcast devices, basically. Um, on the TV, you know, it's a very small number of people who send out messages to millions of people watching on the TV. You get the idea. Uh, same thing with newspapers, same thing with radio. That defines really the, the, the 20th century. It's, 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 it's a defining feature of kind of 20th century, uh, the nature of influence transmission in, in the 20th century. And so it may, given that that's our recent lineage, that is kind of the world that we all grew up in. That's the world we grew up in. Um, and, and we take most of our premises from that world. We all have this mental model where to actually find one's own voice in a way that is valuable and meaningful requires you to climb that pyramid. Because if you don't climb that pyramid, then you don't get access to the broadcast and you functionally don't exist. So if you want to be a philosopher, if you want to be a scientist, if you want to be an artist, we all grew up deeply believing. And, and on some on some level, we, we were right to believe this when we were younger, but we're no longer really correct to believe it. We grew up believing that you had to, you had to commit to this um, kind of disgusting bureaucratic game of uh, paying one's dues and, and jostling for prestige and status by befriending the right people, impressing the right people, jumping through all of these hoops for, for much of your life. What Deleuze, I think, is really, really, really um, amazing for is getting into a, a completely different state of mind where the path to true creativity and to truly original thinking that actually has an impact on the world goes a completely different path. It's just, it's completely, absolutely different. And he's trying to show us how that works. He's trying to show us why um, going the path of the big pyramid is actually the, one of the surest ways to destroy yourself and, and prevent yourself from ever saying anything original. Because he's very interested in this question of novelty and originality and, and really saying something fundamentally new. And um, yeah, so that's what, that's to me, arguably the thing that is most important and valuable about Deleuze and the why, why I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with him and, and constantly returning to him. It's because he's, he's basically developed this whole philosophy where his main, one of his main ideas is that you have to completely turn away from that dominant pyramid or, or grid of intelligibility. And what you're doing instead is following a kind of Spinozan, Nietzschean um, model where at every moment, all you're really trying to do is increase your own joy and open up one additional kind of creative possibility that opens onto um, the creative energies of other people. So you're just looking, you're just looking to constantly compound internal, imminent, immediate uh, flows of your own creative possibility in a way that actually brings you farther and farther away from that great pyramid, but actually uh, offers the possibility of breaking onto something fundamentally new and having a significant long-term kind of life project that's that's actually original and profound and that connects up with the energies of other people in that kind of way. And, and that is the true model of revolutionary politics, which kind of goes back to what we were saying before about how it's defection followed by um, kind of organization or, or communion with, with others. Um, that, that's, that's kind of the key heuristic or mental model that I see in all of Deleuze's work as, as representing and trying to model and, and show us, show us uh, or guide us to. So in terms of these other currents of 
you're saying reactionary leftism, which to to remind people refers to this this meaning of reactionary as we might say based, we might say um, vital, strong, autonomous. Um, in other words, the the qualities that are coded negatively by these controlling institutions of modern life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you wrote. Uh, one would need to write a book to map out all of these different currents. What were some of the other currents that you were thinking of that would be parallel to the Deleuzian one that you document in the book? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's many. I'm sure you're aware of some too. So we could probably riff on this, I think, quite quite interestingly. I mean, so I think Marcuse, for instance, is, is, is still underrated. I mean, uh, Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff in their recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind, you know, in this new wave of books that everyone's writing, like the James Lindsay, the James Lindsay and, the, you know, Jonathan Heights of the world, everyone has to have this kind of obligatory chapter where they they pin it on someone in the kind of history of, of, of left wing thought. And uh, I was very surprised and kind of intrigued that uh, Height and uh, who I admire tremendously uh, pins it on on Marcuse. Marcuse is featured in that book as as one of the big culprits. And I was very surprised by that. I, I'm not I'm not convinced of that. I think in, in some ways. Marcuse was an effect of of what people are describing um, more so than a cause. Marcuse himself was quite based. I mean, he Marcuse represents a kind of like left Heideggerianism, which I've always been very interested in. And um, everyone knows, you know, Heidegger uh, is definitely coded as as right because of his uh, you know unfortunate dalliances with the with the Nazi Party, and so. So yeah, I think I think left Heideggerianism is one. Basically, Marcuse kind of represents that early on. Later, he becomes more kind of uh, beholden to the student movement. But I, th- I see him as kind of falling victim to the student movement more so than him causing the student movement at the time. So you probably know this anecdote, but your your, your audience might not. The Frankfurt School, more generally, of which Marcuse was kind of one of the members, mo- mainly you know you, people include other people sometimes, but the, the main figures being Marcuse, uh, Horkheimer, and Adorno. Um, these are uh, Jewish emigres in, in America who are basically carrying on the Marxist tradition. Um, but what they're, you know, what what everyone, what all the Marxists of the 20th century are really interested in is, you know, why did the workers' revolution never come? Basically, it's like sometimes called the crisis of Marxism because Marx, you know, predicted there there would be this grand revolution, right? And in the middle of by the middle of the late 20th century, the big question for the Marxists is like, what went wrong? Why didn't this happen? You know, and um, a, the, the Frankfurt School has generally kind of reactionary answers to that question, especially Adorno, right? So the by the time the student protests of 68, you know, everything's kicking off like is very, very revolutionary in 1968 in the Western countries. You know, um, it, it's very interesting to see these responses. Uh, Jeff, I'm sure you know this anecdote, but basically there's this famous anecdote about how uh, um, some protesters barge into Theodore Adorno's classroom and uh, they're young female protesters, like feminists, you know, radicals, and uh, they barge into his room his classroom while he's lecturing and uh, they bare their breasts. They, they take their shirt off and they're kind of raving about, you know, liberation or whatever. And uh, Adorno was just absolutely horrified by this. He was totally horrified. And um, there's a famous correspondence between Adorno and, and Marcuse basically. And they have a falling out over this because uh, you know, Adorno saying that basically um, th- like, this is awful. This is not revolutionary. This is kind of everything that's wrong with society becoming uh, kind of even more ingrained in, in the radicals. And Marcuse is much more sympathetic. Marcuse kind of sees in this stuff possibilities that, that are positive. So again, so I think this is like 
this is an interesting anecdote because it both shows that at the core of critical theory, uh, before you know the, these kind of the, the radical moment of 1968, there is a, a pretty emphatically kind of reactionary uh, component represented by Adorno. But even Marcuse was was part and parcel of that until he decided to kind of go along with it a little bit more and, and, and kind of accept it or tolerate it or embrace it. Um, so, so I think that kind of shows that Marcuse could not be the cause of it. I actually think, uh, I'd be curious to know what you think, Jeff, like, do you have a, do you have someone in the kind of radical left-wing canon who you do see as uh, representing the, the, if you had to pin it on someone who's most responsible intellectually for the, for the chaos we're seeing today? I have an answer, but I'll, I'll let you answer first if you have one, I'm curious. Mm. Yeah, I think I usually try to avoid those kind of, I mean, one of my main shticks has been to avoid uh, causal explanations that, that begin with the, the ideas of a particular person. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand, yeah, but it is yeah, kind of and, fun. <laughs> and so, I don't know. Um, I I wouldn't say I really do. I, I, I mean, I agree with your your assessment of, of Marcuse. I think he, um, you know, he's... He's not unlike um, intellectuals, you know, we've seen in more recent times in that he's um, trying to imagine revolution, but he's, he's looking for the right subject. He's, he's not sure who is going to, you know, when he writes Repressive Tolerance, which I wrote about recently, you know, he's portraying the panorama for the left in the United States as unrelentingly bleak in 1965, which is interesting because most of us retrospectively think of that as the the beginning of this, you know, great moment of immense um, revolt against the establishment. And, you know, this is after the Berkeley free speech movement kicked off and it's when civil rights was, you know, in many ways, the, the movement was in many ways succeeding. So nevertheless, he in 1965, I mean, part of the background of that essay is he sees the position of the left as largely hopeless. So I think given that, you know, he's he's partly when he sees the student movement come about it, um, it's an opportunity for him to feel a bit more optimistic, I suppose. But I agree that he's not, you know, and there there's some good um, there's some good writing on this as well about how, yeah, his books were sort of bandied around and his name was dropped a lot. But, you know, his books were pretty difficult to read. So <laughs> the vast majority of student of people involved in student protests and, um, you know, radical activities did not read his books at all. Definitely. Um, but <clears throat> his books were not, um, you know, they were dense philosophical tomes in the sort of Marxist key. So they were not easy for just anybody to pick up. So, yeah, so th- this is a tangent from your question, which is who I blame. Eh, that's a good question. I, I feel like I don't, I, 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 partly because like I've, I've spent, I've expended a lot of effort criticizing people who try to um, blame, you know, large scale political problems on the influence of one particular thinker or another. But oh. who do you blame? No, I completely agree with you. That's a fool's <laughs> errand, and it, it's not. It's I wouldn't take it seriously uh, as as a kind of uh, historical causal argument. But I feel like if there's someone who, um, I feel like the, the the most reasonable version of this fool's errand would be Gramsci. I think mm-hmm. because I think Gramsci's ideas. Again, I wouldn't put it on him personally, but in terms of in terms of ideas actually having influence and being the warrant for various you know activities. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's a there's a, a historiographical case to be made in favor of Gramsci just because you know, uh, for people who are listening, maybe don't know. So he's an Italian uh, Marxist who also, like I just said, was was really grappling with this with this crisis of Marxism, where like the workers' revolution just not only does the workers' revolution not happen, but in a lot of ways the workers become reactionary forces, and this is just very counter to what Marx predicted. And so, um, uh, it's Gramsci who uh, tries to solve this problem with this concept of cultural hegemony, which itself has a lot of influence that, that that term does get picked up in, you know, humanities departments and stuff like that. And, and I do believe that that kind of hit the scene much earlier than Marcuse, if I recall correctly. So I think it, it maps out a little bit more sensibly um, in terms of, of the time that it takes for ideas to gestate and, and, be, and be distributed and have influence. And so, um, but the basic idea there being that, you know, the reason the workers didn't revolt, the reason the, the Marxist revolution hasn't come yet is because of, uh, you know, the ideas that dominate in a society, capitalist ideas have cultural hegemony. And therefore, if you want to make the Marxist revolution succeed, you need to tackle the, the, the cultural hegemony. And, and, and people like, you know, a lot of the left-wing radicals of the 68 period, um, like Rudy Dutschka, for instance, and uh, the, the, the terrorists in, in Germany, um, I do believe cited, cited Gramsci. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't put it all on him, but um this idea of even just the long march through the institutions, which yeah. you cited before, which is a famous kind of phrase in, in kind of the, the history of the, the, the radical left. I believe that has its that actually has its its kind of um, historical source in, in the in the Gramscian concept of cultural hegemony. Like that's who um, I think it was actually uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was actually Rudy Duchka who um, coined that phrase, the long march through the institutions. I could be wrong, but um, I do believe that has its provenance in Gramsci and so that'd be that'd be the case well, that I would make. And I think, you know, very related to much of what we've discussed, that becomes this institutional strategy whereby the path towards political progress is essentially taking over institutions so as to um, infuse them with liberationist ideas. And the problem with this is essentially the one that we've we've been coming back to again and again, which is that the institutions, and, you know, I, I think if, if you read people like the Frankfurt School or Foucault, this should be clear. Um, the, the institutions, simply the way that they function is itself uh, politically coded, right? And you, you can't just take the same institution and um, fill it with radical anti-institutional ideas and expect for it to actually function differently. Um, that, that doesn't work. Um, in fact, what, what happens, as we've said, is that the, the anti-institutional ideas actually become the, the alibi for the institution to continue existing. Right. Um, and so this, you know, so the long march to the institutions, you know, which, which I agree is at least, I mean, you know, I, I think there are deeper, you know, it, it wasn't, and you know this, but it wasn't just because people read Gramsci, right? There, there are sort of deeper um, material explanations of of why that became the the dominant strategy. But and, you know, partly because these ideas, you know, which as you said were largely, um, you know, not embraced by large segments of the working class and have weakened as you know labor unions and things like that have weakened. Um, have, have largely become an, a sort of ideology of the professional class. And so oh. it stands to reason that the institutions inhabited by the professional class would become the, 
the hotbed of these ideas, but to the extent that the ideas are largely functioning within the institutions by actors who are operating according to their logic, um, mm-hmm. their anti-institutional impetus is, is diffused by that, um, by that material and institutional position of those, of those um, proposing these ideas. So that, that's how I would understand the, the sort of paroxysm of the long march through the institutions, that it, the, the long march through the institutions means that the institutions that you change and the institutions don't. <laughs> how I would put it. Right. I also think an underrated variable in the the paroxysm of social justice hysteria that we're living through right now is uh, just te- technological acceleration. I think people don't see this enough or don't talk about this enough. The fact is that things like AI and crypto, I think actually really are really do threaten the people who has, still have purchase of of status and income that are insulated from market pressures, basically. And so I think I'm surprised people don't talk about this more. I'm surprised it's not more more obvious to people as as a as a causal variable for for what's making the institutions so hysterical with all of this like social justice stuff is these people know that they are going to be replaced by AI pretty much um, or by like way more competitive and effective uh, like market-based competitors and alternatives basically. Um, And what's interesting actually is like, there's an interesting Marcusean kind of line here because, you know, his whole, one of his whole points in in one dimensional man is that instrumental rationality is basically flattening our culture into this highly standardized, homogenous uh, material that is pretty much all about making it more easily processed and more easily optimized. This is a very Heideggerian argument. Also, it's basically you know what Heidegger calls standing reserve. We are we are turning each other. You know, Heidegger makes this argument and and the question concerning technology that basically modern technology has a way of turning things into standing reserve, which is this kind of phenomenological term for like when you see an object as just something. Uh, ready at hand, waiting to be exploited for whatever purpose you want. Like that's a certain type of phenomenological uh, kind of kind of um, status, and modern technology produces that phenomenological status. And and we are now turning ourselves into standing reserve, where we don't even see each other as as these mysterious beings that in fact we are, but we see each other as just like objects to be used for whatever reason, right? And so uh, Marcuse is basically applying this insight to a kind of sociological analysis and saying that. Um, this has a, a kind of flattening one dimensional kind of effect. And, uh, I think he's absolutely, absolutely correct. Uh, really, really on point and importantly so, but, um, oh, where I was going with that is just to say that ironically, this is one of the reasons why contemporary institutionalized intellectuals are in fact so replaceable because they have for decades submitted to a kind of standardization process where, like an AI is going to be able to produce academic papers better than academics, but it's in part because academics have submitted to this highly standardized, homogenized um, kind of landscape, right? And so it's like, no, in no time soon, not, not, not because of anything special about me, but in no time soon is an AI going to be able to write something like base to loves. Because, you know, I'm not saying it's, a, it's, it's amazing or genius or anything like that. I'm just saying it's, it's unique, uh, whether you like it or not, it's unique, it's idiosyncratic, as, as I said before. And so that's the type of intellectual work that's truly not replaceable by AI. But, but you know, if you're like a professor today, you're basically half of your labor is like doing bureaucratic administrative tasks. And then half of your labor is writing like highly standardized papers that 
um, are more or less, you've already more or less made yourself an AI, but like a crappy AI, a slow moving crappy AI. And so I think this is the real paranoia. This is why people are super anxious is because like, if you've built status and income in an institutionalized bureaucratic career, you pretty much are just like a really expensive, slow moving AI. And uh, I think those types of people know better than anyone that they're easily replaceable. And they know better than anyone that half of the stuff they talk about, like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, half the stuff they do in their meetings, they know deep down inside, it's not going anywhere. It's not having any real effects. It's not valuable. So I think there's a deep seated interior awareness among these kind of institutionalized professionals that um, AI is coming for them. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're so morally hysterical is because morality represents this kind of um, thing that they can still do. That's like vaguely creative. It's like, it's, it's something that machines can't yet really like produce effectively. So by making morality, their specialization there, this is like their strategy for staving off their economic obsolescence. That, that's one of my theories. That makes a lot of sense. It relates to something I wrote about the current, the relationship between austerity and, um, kind of ratcheting up of social justice priorities in universities, which is, yeah, that I, and I, I think the, you know, it's, on one hand, um, there's a sort of tendency to um, compete on the basis now of who's more committed to, you know, various causes, right? And mm-hmm. that's both how institutions are competing with each other. It's also how different departments are competing for resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so increasingly that's become central to as you're saying, how these institutions make the case for their own existence. Um, And I hadn't thought of it in terms of the AI angle. I thought of it more just in terms of something somewhat related, which is that the university has been so, I I mean, on one hand, it's, it's constantly demanding of, of, again, these kind of bureaucratic justifications um, for everything you do has to have some kind of explicit rationale and has to be, um, you know, the value of it has to be um, made explicit from the beginning through all series of abstracts, proposals, um, et cetera. So, you know, on one hand, there's that. And then on the other hand, the university has kind of lacked a, a clear sense of mission for some decades um, as it's become increasingly corporatized and has in, become increasingly dedicated simply to reproducing itself, right? It, it has no, it's, it's an entirely self-referential thing. And there's a, a great book from the 90s called The University in Ruins that makes this case that particularly focusing on this discourse of excellence, right? If you read any university mission statements, uh, it's, it's always full of this word. Any kind of new initiative is always framed in terms of excellence, and he makes the point that uh, Bill Reddings, the author of the University of Ruins, makes the point that you know excellence is a is an entirely it's it's an entirely entirely content free word, right? It's it's just um, it 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 can it can function entirely self referentially, and therefore it's it's the way that this institution that's lost any substantive sense of its own mission continues to justify its own perpetuation and reproduction. But at the same time, that I think that's increasingly been supplemented by these sort of moral arguments, right? But I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that <clears throat> that that will. Um, I mean, I I agree. I th- I think that's that's a very good way of thinking about how the 
the current culture war conflicts are playing out, right? It's these institutions that are threatened in the ways, ways you describe by technological acceleration, trying to find something that will help them make a substantive case for their own existence. Um, I think part of the problem is that the, the very institutions that are making those claims are the most hyper elitist of all of them, right? Um, you know, where I was just looking at some statistics about, you know, sort of Ivy League schools where, you know, the average family income of a student is like $200,000, um, you know, and only like a couple percent come from below the poverty line. And this is in recent years, right, when these institutions are at the same time presenting themselves as these bastions of, of sort of justice and moral values. So, you know, I, I think there's a, there, there's also just a contradiction there that will become increasingly evident as, yeah, this, as this dynamic especially unfolds. Especially as they do things like abolish SATs, like this is consol- mm-hmm. like what you're describing, they're, they're, gonna, they're consolidating it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think we're going to a near future where basically wokeism and prestigious institutions are in an increasingly kind of tight bond, which represents a kind of democratic party, um, like mainstream establishment. But, but here's where it gets ironic is that's the new nomos in other words. So, so you have, you're going to have this kind of elite uh, prestigious wokeism, which styles itself as a kind of like rebellion against old you know, social injustices being the, the, the new nomos and the representatives of this nomos are going to have this increasingly conservative re- reactionary element to them, which is essentially about law and order. Like social justice is now about law and order. And in, in the name of uh, a kind of like pseudo rebellious vision or, or philosophy. And so I think it just makes sense that a similar inversion should take place on the outside of institutions where it's like maybe on the surface, it looks a little reactionary, but the underlying reality is emancipatory. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, that, you know, this relates to, I mean, revisiting um, somebody I brought up at the beginning, um, David Graeber, you know, he, ha- he has some line again, related to his criticisms of the contemporary university that, you know, a great deal of, um, a great deal of what passes for scholarship has just become, um, you know, something almost like medieval commentary on this canon of established texts. And largely those texts are these kind of um, high theory, sort of mid to late 20th century, your, you know, post-war um, works. So, you know, on one hand, I think there, there's a sense that maybe these, these ideas are, are already overdone um, and perhaps we should look elsewhere. On the other hand, I, I, one of the arguments I'm trying to make with the Outsider Theory Project is that there, there are dimensions of these ideas that, that have been systematically underexplored and they really relate to the problems um, that we've been discussing that, that afflict the major institutions of our society today. And totally. that the, the best way, you know, because these were pioneered as, um, as critiques of the institutional formations they saw emerging in the post-war era, um, you know, we're, we're considerably further down the line and we can see trajectories that have continued more or less along the lines they observed, also things that have shifted. But nevertheless, I, you know, my, my vision for, again, at least part of this project is to, to try to pick up the institutional critiques that emerge out of that body of writing and use them to think about what's actually going on in the institutions where these theories are 
widely circulated, but in a way that tends to um, tends to ignore their uh, rather embarrassing implications for the, those institutions themselves. So this oh. is really the 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 aspect that that I think um, makes these thinkers worth returning to and and continuing to think about in a somewhat different vein than than has typically been the case. Yeah, completely, completely agree. I mean, it's very ironic, isn't it? But the, it it is true that basically because critical theory it gets such a bad rap as being responsible for the problems we're seeing today. In a weird way, it's precisely what no one is really studying it, it for its more interesting aspects. So there's this like extreme undersupply of actually interesting readings of these pretty profound and complicated thinkers. And I mean, at the end of the day, like every genuine thinker or philosopher is, is many sided and, and always kind of goes in different directions at different times in their career and, and is fascinating and complicated. And so it's like, sure, maybe you can pin a little bit of the blame on, on some of these people in some ways, but because academics are increasingly, you know, kind of stultified and, you know, I kind of make fun of this in base Deleuze. Like, it, I mean, if you look at the scholarship on Deleuze today, coming out today, it's truly just hilariously horrific. I mean, it's like, um, just, I mean, with some exceptions for sure, with some exceptions, no doubt. Um, but the overwhelming majority of, of new papers or books that come out on Deleuze is like, I mean, I, I almost don't want to talk about it too much because I don't, I don't want to be mean. It's like, it's like, but it's, it's a sad state. It's a, it's a truly sad state. And, um, but uh, the irony is that if you're actually well-read on those books and you're interested in what is interesting and illuminating about those thinkers, now is a great time to be writing about that on a blog such as yours or on a blog such as mine, because there, there's extreme undersupply of genuine insight into what's actually interesting about those people. And so I, I'm super bullish on that. Um, I want to I want to keep doing the same, and I hope you keep doing the same. Uh, are there are there particular figures or ideas you think that are particularly promising to me? Well, I I was gonna do my second book on Bataille because I think he's a good one, but increasingly I kind of feel like I'd most like to write about Adorno next because Adorno is kind of uh, since he actually is of all of the people we're talking about, arguably the most reactionary, like actually reactionary, but nonetheless a Marxist. I think he would kind of be the most fun to write about right now. But what are you thinking about moving forward? I um, am probably most immediately going to work on Foucault. And I have a I have a piece that will come out um, that, that's in progress at the moment. Because one of the most interesting things about the COVID era has been, well, you know, we saw one dimension of this with Agamben's controversial early arguments. Right. Which I think, although he did jump the gun in some ways, I think in broad contours, he was lar- he was vindicated. Um, and and we will see a, a, a post 9-11 like securitization of society that even, you know, even assuming the vac- vaccines are effective at largely eradicating the illness itself, that the um, the structures that emerged out of the state response to it will remain with us for some time, you know, in the same way we still take our shoes off at the airport. So anyway, I think Agamben was, uh, you know, a, a good illustration of how um, when you had this kind of, um, this this moment of clear and obvious exercise of biopolitical, you know, of, of biopower, um, that, you know, in a sense, one shouldn't have been surprised to see someone like Agamben react to in the way that he did. What it revealed in a way that, you know, returns to much of what we've discussed 
was the degree to which the left is captured by institutions that um, limit their capacity to critically reflect on the negative aspects of the power wielded by those institutions. So, you know, part of the irony here is that, again, you know, somebody as influential as Foucault was a, you know, highly, highly notable critic of exactly the, the sort of way that scientific and medical expertise has been wielded as power in the past year. And that, you know, largely the response of the academic left and the left more broadly has been to, um, to essentially argue that we need to just fall in line with whatever, you know, Fauci says or whatever. And that's not to say that I'm a, you know, I'm not a sort of Corona truther or anything like that, but I find the, um, the sort of harsh dogmatism of the response to it when the reality is if you, if you actually look at the science, it is highly inconclusive. The policies that were implemented were um, highly experimental and not based on any sound science. And that's just, you know, it's, it's very easy to show that that's the case. So I think the, the sort of Foucauldian biopolitical implications of the moment we've been living through are truly notable. And of course, much of the Foucauldian um, sort of academic apparatus, because it is largely part of this liberal institutional world um, that, you know, was responsible for and supportive of the, the um, lockdown and related policies, it is, is simply incapable of, of using those insights to, to think about this moment. I mean, th- there's so, even academic literature on that. I'm, are you familiar with that book? Oh, I, I forget. Uh, Foucault 2.0, I think it is. It kind of mm. argues that he was reactionary. So it's not uh, unprecedented. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And his later, his later work is, is, is better, honestly. Like one of my, mm-hmm. my favorite book by Foucault, I talk about it all the time. I don't know if you've heard me talk about it, but it's called The Courage of Truth. Have you read that book? It's his, it's his final lectures at the college. I haven't college. actually. Yeah. And uh, it's fire. Mm. It's, it's the best Foucault. It's the best Foucault I'm aware of. And I've read, mo- I've read most of Foucault actually. And uh, he, he talks about Diogenes and kind of the ancient Greek concept of Parisia. And it's basically free speech. It's like mm-hmm. radical free speech. And I've, I've talked about it a lot. I, I won't go mm-hmm. into it, but um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I think that's probably um, what I'll be most interested in for the moment. So, and, and there will be, I will be publishing something related to that um, in the, in the spring or summer, but yeah, I mean, there, there are many other paths to take and, you know, I think this was a good kind of meta conversation to have because it in many ways outlined the sort of, I mean, if you follow the outsider theory blog, you know, it, it does have this other or a few other dimensions, one of which is an interest in conspiracy theory. Um, and, you know, that sort of version of unofficial knowledge or extra institutional knowledge, um, but also the way that it exi- it's, it's defined as a, you know, the, the term conspiracy theory is itself coined as an attempt to discredit, right? right. Um, so, you know, and in fact, the invention of and dissemination of the term conspiracy theory was itself arguably a conspiracy, right? It was, it was essentially a conspiracy by the deep state to, um, you know, discredit people who were skeptical of the Warren Commission report and things like that in the 60s. So, um, but I think um, this sort of relates to what we've been talking about, because 
you know, why are people worried about why are, why is the New York times and um, various other sort of prestigious institutions so worried about conspiracy theory and what they call misinformation? Well, essentially because it just shows how little control they have at this point over, over disc, you know, public discourse. And so, you know, they're engaged in this constant game of whack-a-mole of trying to, you know, as you discuss in the book to object. Right. Um, but they're, they're largely, you know, in doing that, and this applies also to how the platforms have been influenced to try to crack down on various types of speech are, are revealing the limits and weaknesses of their own um, institutional authority. And every time they do it, they, in a sense, weaken their own institutional stature, which, you know, would be greater if they could present themselves as purely neutral arbiters. Um, But now that they increasingly feel they can't do that because of how little control they seem to have, they're um, actually at moments where they show their apparent strength, they're actually showing their underlying weakness, especially in light of this process of technological acceleration that that we've been discussing. So I think, you know, the the project really comes together around um, institutionally unauthorized knowledge. Now, some of that knowledge is definitely not of the highest caliber or particularly worth paying attention to, but um, I nevertheless think it is, it is largely where the, the interesting stuff is happening these days. Totally. Yeah, I definitely agree. It seems seems increasingly undeniable. I think people are just afraid to invest in it because it's it's, it's still new and weird, but it seems like irreversible as far as I can tell. So I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. All right. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence in outsider totally. theory. Totally. And I also appreciate your uh, coming on to chat. It's been fun. Happy to. Thanks for having and, me on, man. Uh, Everyone, if you're unfamiliar, check out Justin's Other Life podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And you can also look into the Indie Thinkers community, which is where he's putting into practice some of the ideas that we've brought up today about creating spaces for extra institutional intellectual work. So definitely check out all of Justin's projects. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Jeff. Take it easy, man.